Thank you, choir. Well, turn with me this morning to John chapter 6, New Testament scriptures. John chapter 6, we finished our series in Romans last week, and we're getting close to the celebration of Easter. So as we do each year around the Advent season, a focus there on the birth of Jesus Christ, we'll spend a few Sundays here to focus on the death and resurrection of our Lord in order to focus our attention uh, on the celebration of his resurrection. So we'll look at a few passages for a few weeks out of John's gospel as we make our way to Easter Sunday. So today let's look at John chapter 6, and let me read verses 25 through 35. We'll go further to that, kind of survey the, the rest of the chapter, but listen as I read verses 25 through 35 of John chapter 6. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, again, we bless you, our gracious Father, whose love is revealed in your Son, whose love is the delight of all life, and whose word we love as the light of life, the bread we've read that satisfies and gives life to the world. So we pray today that you would pour out your Spirit, as we've read here from the Gospel of John, grant that as we think on these things for these moments together, uh, that our hearts may be illuminated and that our days feel filled with peace as we follow you. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In John chapter 4, just a few chapters earlier, Jesus tells the woman at the well that if she drinks from the water of life, she will never be thirsty again. Now, this is a woman who, according to John, had had five husbands, and she was living with a man who was not her husband. She was possibly shunned by her community, and the disciples are certainly astonished that Jesus would speak to her. And yet, to her, Jesus offers water that will satisfy her deepest longings. A similar story is featured in the story or the parable of the prodigal son. You remember the younger son wants his father's inheritance. He wants his money now. 
But when he gets it, he uses it to buy friends, to buy pleasure, and soon the money is gone, and he has to return home in disgrace. But does he return home to condemnation? No. In fact, his apology isn't even very good. And yet the father runs to greet him, an action that would have shamed the father in that culture and lavishes good things on him when he welcomes him home. And one more story in the book of Genesis. I got this from a sermon I heard a few years ago uh, on this passage. You've got Leah, Rachel's older sister, but unloved by her husband, Jacob. He only married her because he was tricked into it, and he clearly prefers her younger sister, Rachel. The Bible even comes out and tells us, the Lord saw that Leah was not loved. And so God gives her children first. And and based on the way she names them, there might be a hint that she hopes child by child this will move her husband to love her. And each time she's disappointed. But when she gives birth to her last son, she names him Judah with this comment, this time I will praise the Lord. And maybe that's just a little hint that she's finally found satisfaction in a greater love, the love of God for her soul. We could go on and on. The Bible is full of stories like this where God mercifully satisfies us with the things we really need. And that is the theme of John 6 as Jesus gives this discourse on the bread of life. We didn't read it, but the chapter begins with the well-known miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And when the people witness this miracle, they're impressed with Jesus. They call him a prophet, and they want to take the next step and make him a king. Certainly somebody that can feed 5,000 people with so little food could conquer all of our enemies, drive them out, and then satisfy us with a new promised land. Lots of food and lots of provision. But Jesus has a different goal in mind. As we've often seen when, when reading the Gospels together, what, what the people are looking for him to do and what Jesus wants to do for them don't exactly line up. And so when they follow Jesus across the lake the next day and they ask him for more bread, which is probably more than just that they're hungry, but their eyes are focused on a miracle, this time Jesus gives them a sermon. And in this sermon, in this discourse, he offers to them the bread of life, eternal life, something that will satisfy their souls. And so as we move into this celebration of Easter, let's look at this discourse today where Christ promises eternal life, soul satisfaction to people who trust in him, to people who feed on him and look to him for those things. And we'll look at this from two angles, first from ourselves and then focusing on what Christ does. First, we have a spiritual need that earthly bread or anything in this earth cannot satisfy. Now, the Gospel of John is full of people misunderstanding Jesus. When Jesus says that he will destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, people think he's referring to the Jerusalem temple, but he says that he is referring to his body. When Jesus tells Nicodemus, you need to be born again, Nicodemus asks, well, how can a grown man re-enter his mother's womb and be born a second time? Again, when Jesus offered the woman at the well, the water of life, she said, what well, where are you going to get that water And here in John 6, when the crowds catch up with Jesus after the feeding of the 5,000, they again misunderstand 
what that feeding pointed to, what the ultimate reality was. And they can't quite follow Jesus as he offers to them the bread of life. Well, why is it? Why, why did they miss it? And how might that translate into our experience in our life? I'd say they miss it because we as humans have a tendency to try to satisfy spiritual needs with earthly things. And that is on display in these verses. And it's on display in three ways in particular. So here's the first way it's on display. We are tempted to ignore the spiritual dimensions of our lives. I'm not saying everybody in here does that. I mean, you're at church, so hopefully that means you do that. But it is a temptation we will face to go out and to ignore the spiritual dimensions of our lives. Let's see how that's on display here. When these crowds catch up to Jesus, they ask him, verse 25, when did you get here? Now, this is interesting, and it happens over and over again in John. You'll you'll see it in next week's passage. Jesus ignores their question. He never answers it. Instead, he goes right for the jugular. He, He exposes their root motive in verse 26. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me. Not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Jesus had served them a good meal, and he did it in a miraculous fashion. And on that basis alone, that display of power and that satisfaction of their needs, they're ready to sign up and follow Jesus. But they don't really understand what's involved in that. They've missed the significance of the meal. They've missed what it was pointing to beyond itself. And so Jesus tells them in verse 27, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Jesus is basically saying, look, friends, you're more than physical beings. There's more than the kingdom coming now. You have a spiritual dimension. And the food that you eat physically or what you think you need for life, yeah, that might satisfy you now, but it won't last forever. You need more. You need to eat bread that endures forever. And Jesus is able to offer that because Jesus lasts forever. He's the eternal son of God. And so because he lasts forever, when people feed on him, when they come into union and communion with him, then they will last forever. And again, it's a lesson on display in the physical things. If you don't eat food, you will eventually die. We do need food to live. But even if you eat regularly, you will still die one day. And Jesus is offering a life that endures beyond that. A life that brings a quality to life now and endures beyond the end of this physical life. And not just some kind of ongoing existence, but a blessed existence, eternal life and joy and a resurrection body and a new creation. So just think about your life and how you're spending it. Maybe you're investing all of your energy or most of your energy in just keeping yourself alive or in providing for the future or in taking good care of your kids. And by the way, these are all good things, things that in other places of the Bible say are expressions of our faith. But in doing that and in the energy it takes to do that, 
be careful you don't forget the spiritual dimension of your life. And in pursuing what you need for this life, have you neglected, perhaps, the spiritual dimension? Because you can't live by bread alone. You can't sustain yourself now and into eternity with merely earthly resources. So that's something we're tempted to do. Here's another idea. Maybe we recognize we have that spiritual dimension, so we want to do something about it. This temptation, then, is that we labor when God calls us to believe. Jesus says you need to work for the food that endures to eternal life. And the crowd therefore asks him in verse 28, Okay, what must we do to do the works God requires? So so their instinct is to respond to Jesus' invitation by saying, Well, okay, what do we need to do? How do we obtain this eternal life? And Jesus answers them in verse 29. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Jesus turns it around on them. He says, I'll tell you what works you need to do. You need to believe. And his point there is on the one hand to put a dichotomy between faith and works. You actually can't do anything to obtain it, i.e. you can't work hard enough for it. But maybe he's also trying to focus their attention on the active side of faith. Don't work, but place your trust in me. God says, if you want to do the works I require, then trust the Son, cling to the Son, and partake of the life. That he has given him. I read this story from uh, Don Carson, who did univer- He was a teacher, but he also was involved in uh, university missions. And there are some trends that he noticed among college students, and these these were particularly evident amongst females in college. That there is intense pressure on them, whether explicit or implicit, to do the following things. They needed to get good grades. They needed to take leadership in campus organizations, and they needed to be pretty. In other words, if they were ever going to be successful, they had to outwork everybody, they had to outlead everybody, and they had to outlook everybody in order to get ahead uh, in their life. And so they're trying to accomplish all those things, and it leads to all sorts of problems and pressures. And Don Carson found often when these kinds of students came to faith in Christ, and, and thank God they came to faith in Christ, but what he noticed is those pressures didn't just immediately go away. They didn't always become Christians and say, okay, I'm so free of that burden. In fact, it wasn't long before some of those people added a fourth pressure to their life. Now I've got to be the best Christian on campus. Now I've got to go to the Bible studies and be involved with prayer teams and evangelism and on and on it goes. Why would they think that way? Because one, the pressure that comes in that's just in the air and in the water, but also this, all of us, male or female, have this temptation to work for the things that God gives by grace, to have a performance-oriented mindset. And maybe when your eyes are open to the spiritual dimension of your life, you're tempted to then dive into it with this kind of mindset. What do I need to do to do the works God requires? And please hear Jesus' gracious answer that it is to believe, to trust in, to rest in the one he has sent. Jesus is saying, I don't want you to do anything other than trust 
me. Find your rest in me, your identity in me, your acceptance in me, because I'm going to spiritually satisfy you. And I won't do it when you work hard. I'll do it when you trust. And then here's the third temptation that this passage presents us with. We think we need more proof when we have access to Jesus. And when I say those words, I'm not in any way downplaying the importance of reasons to believe, good evidence for our faith. It's not a leap of faith. But there is a sense in which we can sometimes keep going down that road when Jesus invites us to know him. And I want you to see that from this passage. When Jesus challenges the crowds to trust him, this is how they respond. Okay, well, how do we know we can trust you? Look at verses 30 and 31. What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, there is an irony in this question. Did you pick up on it, friends? All right, what sign will you do to prove yourself to us? Why is this crowd following Jesus in the first place? He just fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Was that not good enough? Apparently, they want Jesus to do something even more spectacular than that. They want him to show how he connects to Moses and how he can be greater than Moses feeding the Israelites with manna in the desert. And in this instance, Jesus does not offer them more proof. He's given them a sign. But this time, he does not. Why not? Because in this instance, to give them a sign would cater to their mistaken aspirations would cater to the way they're still thinking of making him king and finding all their answers in earthly things. And so instead, he tells them in verses 32 to 33, Very truly, I tell you, it was not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You want to see a miracle like Moses? Once again. Look beyond and see what the sign is pointing to. God was working through Moses. And what God was doing through Moses was anticipating what God would do through Christ. And so it's just like Jesus says in the previous chapter, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Now look, don't get me wrong, that's a radical statement. To a faithful Orthodox Jew, you can understand why they might say, okay, you're going to need to back that up lest they be disloyal to God. But Jesus will eventually back it up with the greatest miracle of all, the resurrection. And in the light of that miracle, they can reread their Old Testament and they can see that it all works with reference to him. But the only way they're going to see that is with the eyes of faith to embrace that he is who he says he is, and then things will make more sense. And so for the crowds at this point, they don't need more proof. They have the scriptures, they have the witness of the Old Testament, they have Jesus standing in front of them, and if they will trust him, then they will see that it all points to him. And if they won't, then he's not going to do another sign for them. Now is the time 
to trust. Now again, ironically, there actually is one more sign coming, the greatest of all, the resurrection of the dead. But, but there are points in our lives where God says, look, the time has come to trust me. And when you trust me, then things will begin to make more sense. And so they ask him in verse 34, well, sir, always give us this bread. They just still don't understand. Jesus, you're going to give us greater bread than Moses' manna? Well, we're ready for it. Give it to us. But Jesus actually has something greater in mind. So those are our temptations. But let's see then how Jesus answered those, how Jesus meets those needs. And that's the second angle then on the passage. And it is this, that Jesus satisfies our souls with eternal life. And he lays it out right there. In verse 35, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. You want the bread? It's right here. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. What our souls need more than anything else is to be satisfied with Jesus. We need the person of Jesus himself to know him, to trust in him, to commune with him, and through that union, he satisfies our deepest needs and desires. This is what the prophets of old promised, Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Jesus has come to embody that offer. Now, as we'll see as we look at a few more of these verses, the crowd is just not ready to accept it. Jesus says in verse 36, but as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. And so in the verses that remain, this is how Jesus assures us that he can and will indeed satisfy our souls with himself. And once again, the idea is developed in three ways. So let's look at them. One, God has determined to satisfy our souls with Jesus. Now, the crowd's not ready to hear that. They're they're not ready to hear how he'll satisfy them. But you know what? That doesn't take away anything from Jesus' ability to save and satisfy our souls. Listen to the words he says here in verses 37 through 40. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Listen to the, the basic points that Jesus is making. He speaks of the Father giving a group of people to the Son. And he assures his hearers that the Son will preserve them. The Son will save them and deliver them. They will look to the Son. They will believe in the Son. Jesus will receive them, and he will make sure that none of them are lost. All those who are given him will come to him, and he will raise them to life on the last day. 
Now, these verses often come up in discussing the sovereignty of God and salvation. I think we've even preached before on just these verses alone. At the same time, you may be wondering, okay, why in this discourse does Jesus suddenly shift to a discussion of the sovereignty of God? It almost feels like pause for a doctrinal lesson. Why would Jesus speak in that way? In order to make one big point, to provide assurance in the face of doubt, which is, by the way, the reason God gives us this doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation, to assure his people that they can trust him, that Jesus has come to save them from their sin, and that nothing will thwart that, no matter how many people object, or maybe even at times, no matter how much you may wrestle, to give assurance to doubting souls that you can rely on Jesus and that you can trust him to be who he's claimed to be. He's trying to say, look, if I failed to save my people, if I lost any of them, that would bring shame on me. That would make it look as if I was powerless or if I was disobedient to the Father's will. And that would make God look bad. He fails to achieve glory if his people fail to achieve glory. And so Jesus is staking his reputation on the well-being of his people and telling them, look, you can trust me to satisfy you with myself. Because when you find me reliable, that gives glory to me. And I'm going to make sure that glory is successful. So Jesus has determined, God is determined to save our souls with Jesus. Two, God speaks to our objections when we trust him. As I said a minute ago, nothing wrong with having questions. And in fact, God speaks to those objections. So so immediately after claiming to be the bread of life from heaven and promising eternal life to his people, we, we now have another objection that surfaces. The Jews say in verse 42, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Well, what is all this talk of you coming down and your father giving you a people? We know who your father and your family are. And Jesus begins to respond in verse 43, Stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me. Unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. Here's what Jesus is saying. It can seem odd that he's giving this invitation to come, but then it almost feels like he's stiff-arming them. No one can come unless I draw them. What point is he trying to make? See, the Jews are trying to put all the pieces together. But they're trying to reason from their vantage point. How can all these things be true? And so on the one hand, Jesus is saying, you can't figure it out on your own. You don't have the ability within you. You won't get to me unless the Father draws you, unless he teaches you. But on the other hand, Jesus is assuring them, God will do that work. And he will speak to their objections if they will trust him. Again, verse 45, it is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. And Jesus is just referring generally to all those places in the Old Testament, all those places in the prophets especially, where God promises, I'll enlighten you. 
I'll give you a new spirit. And when I do, you'll respond with faith and obedience. The Father, by means of the Spirit, will teach people to believe in the Son. And the Son then will reveal the Father to those who believe. So so Jesus is just hitting both sides of the coin here. Hey, you can't do it on your own, but there's an invitation here. If you will trust, if you will commit, you will find the Father and the Son and the Spirit reliable. So you can have questions, but you'll find that the answers come easier through the lens of faith. Starting from that vantage point makes things come together. And Jesus is basically saying, as we said a moment ago, eventually you reach the point where you have to trust Jesus. Maybe not all the questions are answered. Maybe not all of the objections are, over, are overcome. But here's the thing. We're not God. And we don't have an infinite vantage point. This is bird's eye view where we could stand and just make sense of everything. But just because you don't have that doesn't mean you can't trust the one who does. And maybe that's a little scary. You know, what if Jesus disappoints me? What if all this religion stuff is just attempts to get power and money? What if it's a difficult path? How am I going to make it? All questions you may have. Jesus is saying, I hear those. Just trust me. I will not disappoint you. You commit to me and things will start to make more sense. And so that brings us to the final idea that Jesus, or excuse me, God gives us Jesus' own life so that we will live forever. The answer to all these things is Jesus himself. Maybe all this can sound at times a little transactional. Okay, you trust Jesus, he gives you this. But what makes it all work is that that eternal life is bound up with a person who died to save us and whom God has given to us. Look down at verses 53 through 55. Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Now maybe those verses sound a little strange. We're wondering, okay, what do you mean eating Jesus? Does this have some kind of reference to communion or what is Jesus talking about? It's a simple imagery in which Jesus uses the language of eating and drinking in order to express the idea of trusting him or of completely incorporating him into our lives. You've got to become one with him, just like when you eat food and drink drink, it becomes a part of you. You've got to become one with him. How do you do that? By trusting him. Uh, last verse to look back from it, verse 40, where Jesus says, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Compare that with verse 54. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. The two verses explain one another. What does it mean to eat and drink Jesus? It means to look to him and believe in him and to trust in him. We even do this some ways Still today in our language, one commentator writes, uh, we devour books. 
drink in lectures, swallow stories, ruminate on ideas, chew over a matter, eat our own words. That's always fun, right? Uh, Doting grandparents declare they could eat up their grandchildren. It's just a way of saying we partake of those things. We invest in those things. We're all in on those things. And Jesus is saying, you can come to partake of the very life that I give when you believe in me, when you partake of me, because I've given you this life at the price of my very own flesh and blood. So can you trust Jesus to satisfy your soul? Yes, you can, because he sealed that promise with his own blood. So wherever you are today, wherever the spiritual need is, don't neglect it, don't ignore it, and know that you'll find the answer in the risen Son of God. So let's thank him for his mercies towards us. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus Christ who satisfies our souls. I pray that uh, the folks gathered here today have experienced that. They they know something of the soul-satisfying work of Jesus. If not, Lord, create that hunger and show us where we need Jesus in our lives. Perhaps there isn't a sense of emptiness. Lord, create it. Perhaps there isn't a hunger. Lord, Make it come. And I pray that we would see where we might uh, satisfy that need with Jesus Christ. Maybe it's our studies or our work or everyday life. Again, things you've given us to do. Uh, But Lord, help us to see where we need to satisfy ourselves with you. And then help us to do that. To give us uh, more spiritual discernment. Help, Help us to cultivate that spiritual life, the spiritual dimension of our existence. And I pray, Lord, you'd come into our lives and that you'd meet those needs and you'd help us to follow you and to find satisfaction in you. So thank you that you are Lord and thank you for your own flesh and blood. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing in closing hymn 647. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds. 647, and we can just sing the first four verses, the verses with the music. So 647, verses 1 through 4. Stand with me, please.